our reading this morning, really during this Advent season, come from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. And while you're turning, let me leave us in prayer. Our God and Father, when you come this day, the day that you've made, that we may rejoice, that we may be glad in it, the day that we may be reminded, and in fact, you have required that we rest in you. We pray that it would not merely be a rest from the world, but that as we are reminded of your nature, of the work that you have accomplished, and the gift you've given us of Christ, we may rest our, our souls as well as our bodies in what Jesus has accomplished for us. We may listen and be reminded as you speak through your prophets and in this case this morning through your servant Paul. We may know you. That we may rejoice, be glad, be overwhelmed, be comforted, and encouraged. Lord, speak to us this day through your word. We pray in Christ. Amen. Romans 5, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more now shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of our God. Jonathan Brennan Manning writes this. Once a year, the Christmas season strikes both the sacred and secular spheres of life with sledgehammer force. Suddenly, Jesus is everywhere. For approximately one month, his presence is inescapable. You may accept him or reject him, harm him or deny him, but you cannot ignore him. For those who claim his name, Christians, 
Christmas heralds this luminous truth. The God of Jesus Christ is our absolute future. And such is the deeply hopeful character of this sacred season. The Advent season which we embark on today is traditionally recognized by the church to be a time of hope. It is one of the four major characteristics of this season that the church is encouraged to think through, cultivate, and give thanks to God for as we come together. The others are uh, peace and joy and love. We see this reflected in a number of places, most vividly and symbolically on the Advent candle that shows up this time of year in churches with a candle being lit one each week, each symbolizing one of those attributes, one at a time lit, but never uh, are they uh, distinguishing. It's not for exchange, but built on the foundation. This morning we lit the, the hope candle, and next week we'll be lit the peace candle and the hope candle. The week after that we'll be lit the hope, the peace, the joy, and then ultimately the hope, peace, joy, and the love candle. All of them completely given to us as a gift in God, from God in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we think of the gift that God's given us that is declared to us through Christmas, these are the characteristics that traditionally the churches recognize that as we look to him, we give thanks for, and those are the things that are cultivated in our lives as well, because this is a season of those characteristics built upon hope, as the Bible describes it. We also see those same characteristics prevalent in the text that we read this morning. As we look at the passage, we see in verse 1 uh, that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we see in verse 2, through him we also obtain access by faith in this grace in which we stand, for which we rejoice, and there is the joy. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have joy and hope in verse 2. We also see hope permeates verses 4 and 5. It's one of the things that is, that is just clear in this particular passage. And then it culminates, we see it in verse 8. And God shows us love for his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this whole passage is one that we don't necessarily uh, can think of like the look at the Christmas time, and yet themes that this Advent season speaks of are the themes that are present here. And so just as a side note, during this Advent season, this will be the text on the basis of which we'll be looking at for each of our messages. This morning we consider hope. Next week Ben will come and, and help us to consider joy for our peace. Camper the week after that will join on Christmas Eve and the morning. Before Sunday of Advent, that we will also then look at the characteristic of love. We might wonder why does the church traditionally do this? Why does the church focus out on these particular characteristics during this time of year? And the reason is, is because this Advent season, Advent is a season of beginnings, it's a time of expectation. It's an awaiting of the coming of Christ while being coming again, while we are reminded of the coming of Christ in the first time. And yet, while these are things that happen throughout the year, the promise of the Christmas story illustrates it for us all the more. This morning again, we, we begin 
in the sentence is thinking about the idea of hope. The hope that is promised and the hope that has been given. And so I'll begin by asking you this. Do you have hope this morning? And if you do have hope, what is your hope in? What is the basis and the foundation of the hope that you have? What is it built upon? And ultimately, I would ask this. If you have hope this morning, how is that affecting the way that you live your life? You see, when we think of hope, we don't necessarily think of hope in the way that Paul or any other Bible writers are using. We look at the dictionary, we see any number of definitions, and I've written down just a, a few of them. One definition is this, to feel that something desired may happen. We use it in ways we say, we, you know, somebody might hope for a white Christmas. Some of you hope that you'll never see a white Christmas or any other day. <laughs> Another definition, similar but slightly different, it's a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen or to be true. Someone's hoping for a, a promotion, or somebody says, I hope for the best, or I, I hope so. And then one more definition is to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. When the dictionary uses an illustration, I hope someone, someone remembers something. Or, I hope to be invited to something. Something that may occur. Something you have reasonable hope to see happen. And yet, each of these characteristics, and the way that we use hope in our, our lingo, almost always shares a, a, a characteristic of uncertainty, doesn't it? In other words, we want something to happen. But we have varying degrees of reason to believe that it's going to happen. And we have almost no control to make things happen. And so for that feeling, that experience, which is common for every one of us, we use the, the word hope to describe that desire but uncertainty. And I don't want to suggest to you that there's anything wrong with that, because it is a common experience that every one of us has in this life. And I'm not suggesting that we do away with that and, and that not use hope in, in that flimsy way anymore. I don't know what else we would call it. But what I do want you to recognize is this, is that the way that the writers of the Bible, the way that God uses the word hope, when he is inspired, those to write it down and to use it, our relationship with him and our trust in him is the exact opposite of uncertainty. It is an assurance. And it's not that that's just a preferable state of being. What I want this morning, by the time we wrap this up, for you to do is to be able to make that distinction 
No one is to all become weird and never use the word hope in conversation with anybody or to be kind of obnoxious people who then lecture everybody who uses that word. You know, I hope my team does whatever, uh, whatever, and, and, and explain hope. Well, that is a, it's just kind of a vain hope, and that's, you know, inappropriate. But Christians don't. You know, it's just, it's just, I hate hanging around people who do things like that. So, <laughs> I have an incredible gift of ignoring it when I'm the person who does it. But anyway, that's uh, uh, Just as we do for many other things, we realize that circumstances dictate. When we're talking about the things of God, when we read hope in the scripture, when we think of hope during this Advent season, that we would not root ourselves in the uncertainty of whatever may be, but that we would be rooted, empowered, encouraged, and assured by what God has said. Because what God has said is this in terms of hope. And in Hebrews 11.1, a passage that may be familiar to many, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And for us to understand how God uses the word hope and how we ought to understand it in relationship to things of God, we need to understand the foundation of the book of Hebrews is this, is that the writer of Hebrews, God through the writer of Hebrews, has already established that our faith is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God, God's gift to us. And so foundational Christian faith, that's been established over and over and over again in, in various ways throughout uh, the book of Hebrews. And yet with that understanding, we, we see in this verse that there is a correlation between what we call faith and hope based on the definition that he's using, the, the, the poetic expression. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So there is a, a connection there between faith and hope. Without going into a great detail, I would suggest to you this and then encourage you to go back to this passage and, and think about it some. But faith is, in, in Christian circles, not just a belief of things unseen, although there's a characteristic of that, there is a belief in that which has already happened, what God has done, what God has promised, and, what, and, 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 and we believe in the historical reality of things, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the faith and our faith, it's not just believing and having this sense of, okay, I don't know, but I'm going to choose to believe. It is rooted in reality, in fact, in veracity. And we believe, for instance, that there was a man named Jesus who was born to a couple, Mary and Joseph. As we dig deeper, we believe that an angel had come to each of them at different times and said, this child that was born is actually was begotten of God and not of Joseph. We believe this man grew, this, this child grew to be a man. And then in his life, he was sinless. And then for that sinlessness, people hated him and killed him. But that this was an intent all along. And this was God's plan all along, is that he would come and become like us because he was God in the flesh. Who lived our lives, lived the life that we ought to live, and bore our sins and was crushed for them. And yet, as is verified through history beyond just the faith community, 
This man rose again from the dead. See, this is the faith that we have. We, we don't see it. Peter deals with that. Look, blessed are those who you know, don't see Jesus. But when we talk about faith, our faith is not in vain. It's in something that is reality. In fact, we shouldn't be here today. There's plenty of things that we would do other than that. If Jesus Christ was not a man who lived, who died, and who rose again. If Christ is not risen, there's no reason to gather and sing in celebration to his name. But in our faith, Rooted not only in the testimony of those that God raised up, but even in the corroboration of those who only believe or declare this guy that he killed was risen again. And we don't have any problem with that, but there's a sense in which when we look at the word faith, we're talking about looking backwards when it's built on that historical reality. What we need to see from this definition, and yet it, and it's true for almost every time the Bible was talking about the word hope, is that hope is an aspect of faith that is rooted in what has happened before, but it is looking forward. We use faith for looking at what has already happened. We look hope for what is to happen. And yet it is rooted in that same God, in those same promises. And the assurance we have is rooted in the reality of what has already happened. In other words, there are things that God has promised and have yet failed come. We have faith in what he has done because we've seen how incredible and how overwhelmingly powerful what has already come to pass is, which is the basis of our faith. We who believe look to the other promises that have not yet come. We look forward to those, and we do so not saying, oh, I hope I can do it this time. But with the same assurance of what has happened, that God is true to his word, and he's capable of doing anything that he declares, and he will do, and nobody can do anything against that, we look forward to what has yet to come with hope, but that hope is an aspect of faith. It is an assurance, even though we have yet to see it. When we look and see what the Bible declares about faith, we need to recognize this, is that hope is rooted in the faith of what God has already done, as the assurance or the down payment, or some say the surety of what he says he will do, and knowing that he will do what he says he will do. Or if I was to give you a simpler functional definition of hope, I would say this. Hope is a life-changing certainty about the future. And when that's what the writer of Hebrews, that is what the promise of hope that Jesus speaks about, the things that we've not yet experienced, but it is Guaranteed because the guarantor cannot lie and cannot be stopped. And it is rooted all in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're an engineer and you like outlining things and you know what we're going, I would call that hope defined. But now we'll look at hope illustrated. Hope illustrated is a life-changing reality, not just in some general way, but moment by moment. Hope is used in the Bible. Hope that is promised to those who are followers of Jesus Christ would be something like this. Imagine that you are stranded on the side of the road. Your car is dying. There's nobody that is nearby. And your cell power is flickering in your house. You haven't seen anybody pass by for a while. There's a sense of hopelessness and wondering of what's going to happen. But at one moment where you realize you have to, you're able to get a call out and you call AAA. 
tell them exactly where you are. They tell you they'll be there in a half an hour. This is a fictional story, so that's <laughs> what So that's my story, they can be there in a half an hour. Um, when you hang up the phone at that time, you have a total change in your experience of the very same circumstances. You're still there. You're still stuck. Your car still will not move. You may or may not have cell power, and yet you have a level of assurance that help is going to arrive. That would be akin to the biblical definition of hope. Maybe somebody would imagine that they are in a battle. And things are not going well. People all around are, are dying. Your numbers are being decimated. You neither have the numbers nor the resources to overcome. And you know things don't look good, but then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you hear another argument. And somehow know that they are coming to your side. And know that once they arrive, they have the manpower and the resources to deliver that you will overcome. It's a total change of our perspective, regardless of our circumstances. The Bible is calling us to remember the gift that God has given us and what all Jesus has done. And the fulfillment of all of the prophecies is that as unlikely as it was for God to fulfill these things, based on statistics. And then realize as sure as he did that, anything else he's promised at this point. Reminding myself it's not our circumstances that are supporting, but our creator who loved us and who has already redeemed us through the sending of his son. See one of the problems that most of us have is that we underestimate how our belief in the future affects us in the now. And we don't recognize how that, that our, our propensity that many of us have towards, towards anxiety or, or depression or your ability to have joy and, and peace regardless of circumstances, it, it all hinges on this quality of, of hope as the Bible defined it. During World War II, really following World War II, there was an Australian, actually an Austrian, a neurologist and, and physicist uh, and psychiatrist named um, Victor Frankl, who after the war wrote a book titled Man's Search for Meaning. That book is considered by many to be one of the most influential, it's listed in many of the top 10 most influential books of the 20th century. The book was born out of Frankl's own experiences as a prisoner of the Nazis in the Auschwitz concentration. And even in the midst of the unimaginable suffering that was going on around him that no doubt he himself has experienced, Franklin never lost his scientific instinct. And whatever it was that he was enduring, he continued to look at the, look at the other prisoners and he studied them. 
And as you watch how they were responding to the heinous things that they were enduring. Most of the people around him died through the Holocaust. Franco lost his own mother, his own brother, and his own wife at the hands of the Nazis in the concentration. Relatively few survived. But the people who were not murdered by the Nazis showed certain characteristics, and Frankel put them into four distinct categories as he recorded this afterwards. He said that there was there were some who became brutal. He said that the conditions brought this in, brought this out of them. He was convinced that this was already in them, it's in all of us, any of us could possibly um, turn brutal. But they trusted no one. And caring for only themselves, these people did whatever it took for them to preserve their own lives. And so they lied, they cheated, they stole, and they brutalized the other prisoners. Because they thought that by looking out for themselves, this was some way of securing that they would live another day. He said some simply gave up. And while the Nazis didn't exterminate them, they had lost all hope, and eventually they lost their drive to live. It became evident first when they refused to wash, which means the reason to wash each day. Soon thereafter, they didn't have any desire to eat. It wasn't long after that that they didn't have any desire to get up out of their cots, and they just withered and they died. He said a third group of people, they held on. He, what drove these people was a dream of getting back to the way things used to be. They were well aware of their circumstances, but they would cling to this dream of their family being restored and experiencing the connectedness the way they had before. That their homes, their jobs, their careers, everything would somehow, they would just hold on, somehow everything would be restored. And, and they persevered because of this. Frank said that he was uh, amazed though, after the war when he followed up with these people to find that the vast majority of them had become disillusioned by life as they experienced it, even after they were set free. A very high percentage of them committed suicide. And others lived with lifelong depression. And almost all of them experienced early death. Frankly, so there was this one small group that kept their inner resolve. And they remained hopeful. As an expression of their hope, they were kind to the others, they were peaceful and sought to be peacemakers, and they had a joy even in the midst of their circumstances and everything they were going through. As Franklin considered this, he, he wondered the same question that any of us would wonder, and you may be wondering right now, why? What's the difference? Why do people fall into the different categories? Frankel wrote one thing that is really a diagnostic for us to understand when he said, life has a way of tearing open the human soul and exposing the true condition that it's internal, its internal foundation. In other words, life, and he was looking at this not just the concentration camp, in fact, Frankel would probably say that as heinous as the concentration camp is, it's simply an intense and an intentional 
um, concentrated expression of what life is anyway. There's brutality, there is ugliness, there is, and, and life over time will strip anyone bare and expose what is in the soul. In fact, with that understanding of the nature of life as was you know, microwaved in the concentration camp, he came to this conclusion. Life only has meaning if it has hope. What he was reminding us is this, or what he discovered is this, is that unless we have a greater reference point for our lives than our circumstances, we're not going to make it through our lives with hope in our hands. So I just want to ask this. Is that what you have? I ask, do you have hope this morning? Do you have a hope that is rooted in a reference point beyond your circumstance? It gives meaning to your life. Some of us functionally would say, I don't know. Others must recognize, some days I do, some days I don't. Others say, I want that, but I'm not sure if I have it. I invite you now to turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 1. Read verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes, even though it's refined by God, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's some things here, and I won't go into great detail, but this is a passage that I hope that you'll consider during this Christmas season, because it speaks exactly to the gift that we celebrate in the person of Jesus Christ. What Peter is communicating to us is that we who have faith in Jesus Christ, by God's power, by God's grace, by God's initiative, we simply are believing, we therefore are born into a living hope. In other words, it's a hope that continues to bear fruit, that is at work within us. And that hope, which is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, and Peter talks about his resurrection, which is authentication of the fact that he is the one who is sent. That hope is rooted in that, so we look forward to whatever it is that God has promised and that we are longing for that is guaranteed and is being kept for us in heaven in a place that it can't be touched and we can't screw it up. But it's ours simply by faith. And so we begin the question, do you have this hope? And for those of you who don't know, the answer is if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have this hope. 
question is whether or not we are appropriating and living in the benefits of this hope. But when we realize hope is rooted in what Jesus Christ has done in the past, and we look to God's promises in the future, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have the hope. That's the promise that is being made here in this particular passage. During this Advent season, what we are invited to do, that the culture screams at us to do, even though they have no idea what they're screaming, is to consider Jesus Christ, who, as Brennan Manning says, is everywhere during this season. Every party, even the fat man in the red hat, is a celebration only because we are declaring Jesus Christ is coming. Every symbol is a reminder of Jesus Christ having come. He has come. He will come again. We live in that hope when we are reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises in the past and know that he will be reminded faithful to his promises in the future. And it's something we need to continually do and to cultivate and to remind ourselves of because when we are focused on that, God's promise, God's ability, and everything that is God, is a transformation that does take place within us, and we have a hope that is an assurance. But I suspect many of you live with this hope, even if you're believers, in a way that I'll just illustrate simply in another way, because frankly it's my hope that is illustrated in this as well. What I mean by that is the way I function with the hope, not the way that God is calling us. I don't know if any of you have ever driven, not well, I'm sure any of you, some many of you have driven across the Bay, Bay Bridge Tunnel. In fact, many people have been doing so. It's been open since the 1950s, and people have driven, trucks have driven, people have come and gone. I, I hate that bridge. <laughs> Because no matter what history has proven, the intelligence of the engineers who built it, the craftsmanship of the construction crew, and the sheer number of everybody making it across safely, which I should be rooted in, it's the thing that I continually screech to myself when I'm going through. Everybody else has made it, why not you? Everybody else has made it, why not you? This other voice that comes in to me and says, you don't drive on the ocean. It just is not a good thing to do. And I experienced during that, what, 19 mile drive, what many of us do in life, what I do in life. I constantly try to remind myself of the truth, at the same time telling myself to shut up about the things that are also true, but not as true as the real truth. And during the ride, I experienced lots of anxiety, white knuckles on my steering wheel that loosen up when I'm in a tunnel and I can't see the ocean. I'm going to do it again until I can see the other side. And the closer I get to that other side, the more the anxiety begins to subside. The reality is, if, when I live life that way, and I hope that my anxiety will subside the closer I get to the end. But if I really believed, there'd be no difference. That I would live in the joy 
and the freedom of God's love that has been proven in Jesus Christ is gift to us during this Advent season and celebration, which is the basis and the substance of the hope that God has given to you. May we concentrate on that gift and all that it promises and be reminding ourselves and one another of that as we also look to what's to come, despite the fact that this life promises trials at various times. It makes sure of us of that hope. Our hope and rooted by the love of Jesus. Father, we do thank you. Not only the promise, the promise fulfilled in the person of Christ. Pray that you would bless us with this understanding. We can remind us so that we can rest in the joy and the comfort and the peace of hope of that thing, those things that are for you. May this Advent season be a time where we commit to cultivating that within our hearts. The way we spill over to day to day life elsewhere. We pray this for the benefit of your people, the praise of your name. For the recognition of your grace. Given us in grace. Amen.